Hello and welcome to the Limitless Podcast with me, Joshua Patterson. I'm passionate about sharing the stories of courage and resilience. Each week, I will be interviewing extraordinary people from all different walks of life who saw past their statistics, who turned personal moments of adversity into strength. My hope is that this podcast can inspire you to step outside of your limits and achieve things you thought never possible. Welcome to Limitless. Gina Martin fought the law and won. At the beginning of 2019 this year, she made up skirting, the act of taking an unsolicited photo of someone's skirt illegal after she was the victim of this at a festival. At the age of 28 years old, she's an activist, writer and law changer and someone I'm really excited to learn where she found her courage and determination from. Gina. Hey. Oh. Thanks for having me. Do you know what? You know when you see someone in the media and on social media and you just like, you know, I really hope that person is the person that you see on it and you've just showed up here in the most vibrant outfit. <laughs> I look like a pimp. It's amazing. <laughs> it I is amazing. It. I wish people could see what you, you've got like a, a like a Corella Deville coat. Was that, is that yeah, how you like describe it? Yeah, like fur black and white coat oh, and like plaid pants. It's amazing. I went to vintage shops in Paris and I found all this stuff and now it's winter I can actually wear it. So the first day it wasn't 20 degrees. I was like, yes, putting that on. Well, yeah, to be Stoked. fair, I probably should follow suit. I'm that guy who wears T-shirts in, like, December. Yeah, but you got your little woolly hat on. Yeah, yeah, but then I, I, I get it wrong, and then I wear it, like, at inappropriate times, and people just pull me up on it. I feel like this is the perfect time. Yeah, I think so now. Yeah, I think well, we both look great, let's I've, be honest. I've got it right. Do you know what? <laughs> since since she's walked into this room today, I was meant to actually probably start this podcast with her about 30 minutes ago, but we ended up just speaking jargon, and I think that just sums... <laughs> The person up. Oh. And do you know what? She she found out that there was hobnobs right next to the studio and she wanted one. She has it in front of her <laughs> and she keeps staring at it. And I've challenged her to try and eat, eat this it. hobnob <laughs> throughout the interview. So if you hear any noise at all, it just blame me. She It's her trying to subtly eat this hobnob. I'm going to try before the end to eat the whole thing. But anyway, I am so happy to have you on this podcast and I think it's come at such a good time. And it's so what's really funny is when you have conversations with with individuals that are close to you and then someone's name pops up mm. and it was yours. And it's just the correlation between what they're going through in their life and what it is that you're achieving right now. Yeah. And if I got a pound for every time, not just female, but male friends have told me that they are going through some form of adversity in terms of, you know, I think it's mainly just like in terms of careers yeah. where they are being unfairly treated and there are so many grey areas. Mm. And I think then for your name to, to to pop up and you have achieved what you've achieved to this point, it's such a blessing because actually I can become more tuned in and actually support them with what it is that they're going through. Yeah. Because I think that the most important thing about this podcast today is a human's voice. Mm -hmm. And it's something that they feel that they don't have and has been stripped of them. And that's why I think today is going to be so instrumental to have you share yours. Do you know what? I think most of us feel like that. I think we all at some point feel like we really can't change things or can't even speak up and, and say what we actually feel like. Because there's so much... There's A, so much you should do this, this is how you should behave, this is how you're lucky to be in this position so don't complain about it, whatever. There's so many narratives around the things we do, whether it's work or relationships or just social interactions and 
all these kind of constructs we've set up. And if anything strays from those constructs, we're not really allowed to say, yeah, I'm not really happy with this. And I'm so bored of that. Like, I'm just... And I know that the law change was a big story and I'm really proud of it, but I always really want to make the point but that it's not about the law. Like, it's not about politics. Politics isn't people in Westminster. Politics is how things happen in your office. Politics is like what happens in this very building we're in now, what happens in your friendships groups, politics with a small p, is like just how people interact. And there's so much people can be speaking up against and so much they can be doing, but I think we all feel a little bit disenfranchised and a bit like, why would it matter anyway? Because everything's, like, how could we make a change? And I'm really glad that I can be that conversation maybe for some people. To any individual that isn't familiar with you, could you just give them you know, a bit of a detailed story of who you are, a bit of your background, just yeah. so that they have a better understanding. Yeah, so now I would call myself a writer and an activist, which is what you introduced me as. About, Thank God I got that right. Nailed it, absolutely nailed it. About three years ago, when I was 25, I would have explained myself as a copywriter. I was working in advertising, literally down the road from where we are now, in London. Um, I came up with the ideas for advertisements, like I was big social media digital creative. And then... I went away for a year to work on a boat in Greece, which was really fun. Um, and Cultural. Super cultural. Exhausting, but cultural. And then I came back, and the month I came back, I went to a festival to celebrate being back in London. I really didn't have any money, and it was like £85 for a day ticket, and I couldn't even see the stage. But me and my sister <laughs> were having a really good time, and we just it was boiling, it was 30 degrees. And I was in this big crowd of like 60,000 people waiting for the killers to come on stage. And these group of guys were like, behind me on on my left hand side and there was like 10 of them they were their girlfriends and one of them started like making jokes to me and like hitting on me and stuff and I kept being like oh like I'm fine mate I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have a day with my sister like we've been waiting to see this band for like 15 years uh carried on carried on carried on and then it was like half an hour of that where I just got to the point where I was like oh mate just will you leave me alone mate like I don't know you are like just I don't need to talk to you like you don't need my attention just let me have a good night and then he made some joke, some really gross joke. And I made a joke back at him. And then about two minutes later, I felt someone brush up against me, but you're in a crowd of 60,000 people. So you're like, obviously. And then I saw one of his mates on his phone in front of me and I kind of looked around his back and he was on WhatsApp and he'd been sent this photo, which was like three inches away from someone's crotch up her skirt. And it's just like the worst photo. Like it was so embarrassing. And it was broad daylight. And it was really well taken. And I realised he was on WhatsApp, so I was like, oh, he's been sent that. So I, in my mind, because I was kind of, it literally happened within a second. Like, I grabbed the phone off him and, like, held it up and was like, what the hell are you taking pictures of my vagina? Like, what is wrong with you? And he was like, it's of the stage. And then he, like, grabbed me and then I slapped him and then we got into a scuffle. And then when he grabbed me, I was, like, looking at all the people around me in their eyes, being like, if I make eye contact with someone, they'll want to help. So I was, like, looking in everyone's eyes, being like, help me, because he, like, had me by the arms. And I was like, help me, help me. And then these two guys were like looked at me like what are you doing like run and they just like pushed him and they were like run run so I like ran through the crowd with this phone and he ran after me and which was the grossest like even now like the grossest fit like you know when you have those dreams when someone's chasing you and you're like I can't get away from like I can't yeah. get it was, it was literally that but in real life it was fucking terrifying and he was massive anyway then I got to the police gave him the phone they said you should be able to go to a festival on 30 degrees and this not happened to you. Like, this is ridiculous, but we can't do anything about it. Sorry. And they would kind of just, like, carry on. And they delete the photo. They were like, don't worry, delete the photo so you won't be embarrassed anymore. And I was like, ah, oh, okay, my evidence is gone. <laughs> cool. And then they just went carry on. And me and my sister just st stood there the rest of the night. I was like, so these guys are still in the festival. They've still all got photos of my vagina covered by a thin strip of fabric. Like, it's not a good photo. 
And I just meant to be like, yeah, cool, killers come on stage, carry on. And nothing happens. Like, what is wrong with us? What are we doing? Like, when this happens to kids, what happens? So I went home and I looked into the law and I found out that in Scotland, upscaling had been a sexual offence for 10 years and various other countries around the world, but it hadn't been in England and Wales. I put, I actually found on my phone a selfie of me and Stevie had taken like a picture that was, by the way, the worst photo anyone's ever taken me in my entire life. And it's now been on every news channel mm-hmm. across the entire country. <laughs> <laughs> me and Stevie uh, and the guys in the background, by chance before they'd done it, they were just in the background of this photo. So I put it on Facebook and I said, can you, can you everyone share it? My sister's friends have got some influential friends who've got good followings. So I was like, can you share it? And it went a bit viral. And then Facebook contacted me and said, take the photo down. That's like, that's harassment. As in, I was harassing them by putting the photo up and saying they'd done it. But the law couldn't help me. So then I was like, F this. <laughs> I'm going to start a social media campaign asking the question, why is this not a sexual offence? Did some TV. And then I got really serious about it, got a lawyer and then lobbied the government for 18 months. Work. It was in the government every week. And then I, we wrote the new legislation and we changed the law in April. So it's two years. Wow. So it's such a long story. I'm so sorry. That no, was such no, a no, long no. answer. No, I think it's it's so important for people to understand the full extent of, of what went down. I think when I think of that and I think of this this guy that did that, I think the easy reaction is to just throw anger at him. Mm. And actually I think the bigger picture that we need to look at here is that that guy clearly doesn't have a good network around him. No. And hasn't been educated. Yeah. Because any man that treats a woman like that yeah. has not been raised well. No, and this is such a huge thing to talk about because like in every interview it was always about the guy that did it and it was like, I'm not sitting gonna sit here and rag on one guy for taking up to get a photo. I'm angry at the societal construct that women's bodies are public property. Like still. that's the default. In two thousand nineteen still. Yeah. Like we sell burgers with a pair of tits on adverts. Like Women, like 18 million girls are sold to male marriages every year. Like we have, we are living in such an unequal society and we have such an issue with the idea of women having autonomy over their own bodies. And if you can't have autonomy over your own body, I don't know what you can have control over. If I have got no control of my own body, then what am I allowed to be in control of? Where's the freedom? Where is the freedom? So it's not about him, like you say, it's about the whole structure and how we've got to this point where that's normalised. How can we educate him and the network around him? Just respect people. Like, it's literally human rights. It's, like, not that hard. I don't know whether it's one thing. I think it's probably multiple things. Like, we... Our parents raise us, but I don't think we realise how much society raises us too. Like, I don't think we realise. It's crazy. TV. Yeah, media. media. The messages you're getting. A quick ad break. This week's episode of Limitless is brought to you by Skillshare, the online learning community. When was the last time you learnt something new? With their online library of classes, you can take lessons in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity and more. Skillshare are offering Limitless listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free over at Skillshare.com limit. Something we talk about a lot in this podcast is about overcoming boundaries. And by learning something new, you push through the boundaries of who you are today. For example, I found a French course on Skillshare, which is not just a helpful skill to have, but a challenge to undertake. So whether you are returning to a long-time passion project, challenging yourself to get outside of your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. 
So for two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free, head over to Skillshare.com slash limit. That's Skillshare.com slash limit. There is a school of thought that I kind of subscribe to that I think it's easier to distract people and I think it's easier for things to stay the way they are now. Like, no one can rock the boat when... Like, you can't serve two masters. Like, network broadcasters, like, they get a lot of money from certain people. The economy decides what kind of stuff we're putting out. You can't you can't be funded by a huge conglomerate and then not say certain things and not sh- platform certain stories. It's like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's the congressional leader for New York in America. She doesn't take any corporate money because she's like, I can't take corporate money and then be surprised if I have to do certain things I'm not happy about. Like, you can't serve two leaders. And I just think that so much in with the media and so much of what is going on right now is it's that way because it's easier. It's easier if people sit at home and go, ha yeah, funny hat, ha stupid outfit, than go, hang on, what's going on with this thing in politics or I want to change this. I don't want you to change stuff. It's way yeah. easier for people this way if things stay like this because then powerful people stay powerful and regular people stay regular and feel like they can't change things. And that's just not true. Looking at you and what you've been through, I never once in any interview that I've seen of you do I get a feeling that you are a victim. I get a sense that a woman has experienced something pretty horrible and has gone, I don't want anyone else to feel like this. Yeah, And has gone, I'm just going to fucking do something about it. I'm going to make that change. And I think that's a really powerful and an admirable quality that you have to do that because actually I want more women and men out there to feel empowered the way that you were and have just had that voice stripped of them and they just need that little bit of confidence to find it because when they do the world is their oyster you know the fact that a young woman like yourself has gone I'm not fucking accepting this Mm. I'm going to go to parliament and take politicians on and you did and for it to have taken 18 months, I think in itself, is an absolute disgrace. It's, there is no, there was no moral pushback apart from Chope who objected to my bill and killed my first bill, who was a conservative politician who killed my first bill a year into my campaigning. This guy, as you said, he blocked your proposed bill, even though he admitted he knew nothing about it. Yeah, he didn't read it. I asked him and he said, I haven't read it. See, this is the problem, right? So... Putting something, a moral quandary in front of politicians and saying, like, this should be illegal or this should be legal or whatever your kind of campaign is, it's not about whether they morally agree. It's about the process and it's about the politics. And that's the problem because it takes 18 months, actually, is a really short amount of time in politics for you to get a bill through. You know, Chope's been tabling 42 bills a year and you can't get anything through. I went in and did it in 18 months. That's very rare in politics. But like you say, through the lens of morality, like, that's a very long time. But that's the problem is the parliamentary system doesn't make it easy for people to change things. And that's not a mistake, you know? What do you think drove you to, to go to parliament? Why you? What, what, what gave you the motivation <laughs> or what empowered you to go and do it? What made you feel confident enough that you could take on such a mighty force? I think there was a couple of things. I think, firstly, I was really fucking bored of brushing shit off. Like I was really over not just for me but for my friends and for people in my life I was so bored of things happening and being like oh yeah I guess that's just how it goes I was like do you know what maybe I'll just try it this time and maybe I won't be able to finish it but then if I don't finish it maybe it opens the door for someone else to like I just I have to try and make something positive out of it otherwise I'll go mad because I'm so fucking bored of this shit so there's that and then second thing is as soon as I started talking about it this is before me too the campaign started 
and there was like a mini Me Too before Me Too had happened, there was just hundreds of kids. So like I was getting DMs from like 12-year-olds, 7-year-olds being like, my teacher upskirted me. My teacher took photos of my vagina in school, my adult male teacher. I found out they were all coming from one place in London and I looked into it and I found this story about this um, teacher called Andrew Cornish who was taking like, I think it was like 5,000 photos he had of like kids. They couldn't arrest him because it's not a graphic image because they're wearing knickers and because it didn't happen in a public place because the school isn't a public place. Law just hasn't caught up. So that was the second thing I found that out. And it was like, well, it's not even really about you anymore, Gina. (laughs) Like, it's not about your thing. It's about 12-year-old girls can't even vote. Like, you have the you live in London, you have a laptop, you've worked in advertising, you know how to use social media, just try and do something for them because they can't do it. And then the third thing is, I met Ryan, who was my lawyer in the campaign, and he was 29, and he was, like, so not jaded and so excited about the idea of working on something like this. And he just, he just buoyed me up. Like, he was, I'm not academic, I'm not, I haven't had any political background, a law background, I'm an art student. So I was going into what was essentially the least like me environment I could possibly go into. But he was, he was like, I'll handle the legislation side of it. I'll handle all the parliamentary duty. You handle the media. Let's whip people up and then we can go in there and I'll do my job. We can do this. And he was like really excited about it. And if I hadn't met him at that point, I think I probably would have given up before that. Um, so but again, he kept the, me network, going. the network around you is so key. Yeah, asking for help. Like we all think we can do stuff on our own. You don't have to. It's so much stronger when you do stuff together. We all have weaknesses and, and strengths. I had to look at my skill set and be like, yeah, I'm good at talking to people. I'm good at getting people on board. I'm good at media strategy. I can do social media. That's where it ends. Yeah. But I'm trying to change law. So I had to get someone in who knew poli- like politics inside out pretty much, who knew law inside out. And I'd teach him about social media and media. He'd teach me about um, how to think politically and strategically. Too Far too often we try and do all of it. And you become someone who's doing nine jobs and therefore you can't really do any of them well because you're 20% on all of them. That was bad maths. But do you, know, do, you know, do you know what though? I think deep down, the reason why he probably wanted to be invested in this is that as an industry where he is probably faced with his own shitey adversities every day. Yes. And he probably is faced with cases that he's not passionate about that are so pointless. Yes. And I don't say that as in you know, what means a lot to someone is irrelevant to me as in like sometimes you look at a case and it is, it's like, He'll be guys, frustrated by what stuff. are you wasting your money and time for on this? You could you could resolve this with a conversation. And he's probably looked at you and gone, I want to be remembered for something. I want to be Part a person that. that has created a legacy mm-hmm. to be proud of, that my children can be proud of and their children. And I think actually what you were going through probably was quite refreshing for him. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's true. It's funny to say that because I think I've always thought of him as like the catalyst. Like he's... We all, you know, uh, what's the word? We all give so much weight to the thing we're not good at. And I'm so not academic. So I just see him as like, how are you alive? Like, how are you that clever and bright and academic and political? Like, I don't understand how people think that way. So I think I've always held him up as being like, and we're great friends. We're on the same level. That's the wonderful thing about our work. It was never him. And then I walked in after after him. Actually, it was opposite way around. Receptionist at Parliament, uh, House of Parliament used to be like, who's you meeting with to him? And I'd be standing in front of him. And he'd like push me forward and be like, it's her meeting. Like, we were very equal. But I think I've held him up as like, I wonder why he got involved with me. But maybe you're right. Maybe it was that he wanted to be involved in something exciting, something that reminded him why he loves doing this work and something that really meant something after it was finished. And I think he gave me like, however much that annoys me, I think he gave me a validity that I wouldn't have had. Like going into Parliament as a girl who wears bright red suits and talks like I do. And I'm like, a, am a bit of a loud, I'm not, a politician. I'm the opposite of a politician. You're eccentric. Yeah. 
So like having this big guy who's like a rugby player in a suit behind me, it gave me some validity. And however much I wish I could have gone in there and convinced them of the moral situation we had and what we had to change anyway. I didn't have that expertise and I had this guy behind me. So he gave me some real weight as well in that situation. I think he knew that and that's why he helped. I think your your character and your presence probably was a major factor in why things sped up so quickly. Because I think you're very vibrant and I think you stand out and I think your energy is very powerful. And I think that there's something to be said about that. And actually, again, no disrespect to a lot of politicians, but, you know, a lot of them don't have a presence. They're not particularly personable. And you kind of wonder why their cases probably haven't gone through so quickly. Mm. And actually, in the end of the day, it's about passion and it's about likability. It's about human issues as well. Like, Massively so. With politics, everything is left to right. Like, we're always looking left to right. We're not looking up or down. Like, that's one of the biggest things when we went into Parliament for the first time was getting in rooms with someone from every single party and meeting MPs from every party because then it didn't become a Labour issue or a Conservative issue. It was a human issue. Yeah, I love that. So I was convincing them that this is a human issue, whereas far too often it's a blue or red issue or a left and right issue. It's not. This is about human beings. And I think you're right. I think being a regular person maybe, I think it really helped because I think, I know I want to see regular people try, give it a go, try and change things. So I'm glad I could have done that for people. And I think that people were far more likely to get behind me because I was a regular person who knew this better than anyone than a politician who said it, that they cared about it because it looked good, you know? Do you know what? I love the fact that you you did that. I love the fact that you, you kind of united the parties because I think, you know, as a bystander, I look at this and just go, I'm so sick and tired of these people ripping each other apart. Same. You know, not just each other's parties, but within their own parties. Like, there doesn't seem to be any solidarity amongst themselves. And actually, for a case like this to come up was probably, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, some people might go, guys, we've got issues with Syria, you know, how is upskirting? Yeah, I mean, that comment, I was Brexit when I was in there. Of course. But actually, you know, no matter how big or small, it is relevant. And actually, maybe cases like yours do give these political parties an opportunity to just unite with one another. I think it did. You know, and and what a wonderful thing, the fact that maybe for the first time in years, you know, like like your lawyer, they can just go home and go, I did something great today. Yes, exactly. Because I think here, do you know what? I've written this on a piece of scruffy paper. (laughs) um, And it's something you said in a caption on one of your Instagram uh, pictures uh, about your book, Be The Change. Mm -hmm. Staying true to yourself and your identity is key because we need to expand the idea of what power looks and feels like. Yes. And I think with what we're talking about right now, that's so important and relevant because actually I feel like these politicians have such beautiful hearts and they do care for people, but they've lost that. Like the whole system that they're in, for want of a better word, not to sound disrespectful, but I think a lot of politicians get institutionalised. They get in there and they have to follow the process for everything and people are trying to undercut them left, right and centre. So even things that they would want to do, they can't do because, okay, if I put this bill down, well, then it affects this in four weeks with my other candidate who I already told them I'd support them for this. It's just like a... It's a boys' school. It's like being in school again. And we look at politics or any major structural kind of authority, I guess, and you go, like, no one... I mean, for me, I'm like a white, young, slim, working-class woman, so, like... I was like, okay, they don't look like me, they're all guys, but at least I can still see something of myself in them. I, you know, like, Diane Abbott gets 50% of the racial abuse that the whole Labour Party get. Because she, she's such an anomaly. She shouldn't be. The Parliament doesn't represent 
the people in the streets. And I think our idea of power, like if you close your eyes and you think about what a lawyer looks like, you're probably imagining a white guy in a suit. If you close your eyes and think about someone like cooking over a stove, you're probably imagining a woman. We have very, very specific ideas of, of what power looks like. And I definitely felt that going in there. I started wearing like black suits and stuff and then was like, I never want a black suit in my life. I'm trying to get them to take me seriously. I'm trying to emulate what they are. And I just really want us to expand our idea of what power looks like, expand our idea of what inspiration can look like and that you can be, you know, like me and a bit loud and a bit mad at times and still be really good at what you fucking do, you know? A quick ad break to give a special shout out to today's partners over at MoMA. It's important when I've got a busy training schedule to find good quality foods to help aid my nutritional needs when in a rush. It's not always easy to find the time to get in a proper breakfast. That's why Mama Porridge is so convenient. Not only are they super quick and easy to make, all you have to do is add hot water. With loads of variety to choose from, my personal favorite of their ready-to-go pots is almond butter and salted caramel. Mama Porridge is made from a blend of British jumbo oats and fine oats and are delicious. Massive thanks to Mama for being a sponsor on today's episode. politics right now is it's terrifying like we have a room full of people who all have a very similar background and understanding experience of the world and therefore issues that need to be front of mind for regular people are not front of mind and anyone who goes into that space to try and change something automatically feels like an outsider like it's terrifying being there for me I, and also i just think cases like yours should be a celebration i think it should be a moment of reflection amongst everyone and go this is a small victory of positivity. I agree. Because I think the fact that you've made this about humanity is what's so key here. And I think where politics has become so dysfunctional now is, is it about the people? Because I don't even think the politicians really know what they're fighting for anymore. Yeah. I think they've lost their identities because it's it, it's about Brexit. You know, it's about the economy, which, yes, I guess like, in some respects is about the people. But we're talking about human beings you know a guy i saw on the news uh, boris johnson got called out by a father whose child was in the hospital oh, the hospital yeah and he was like how dare you come to this hospital for a press opportunity yeah and talk the way you do with when all the you, cuts you've made with all the cuts you've made and my little girl is laying that bed right now and you have the audacity to come here and and, and act like to me that's so blind it's it's all about recognizing the privileges you have and being aware of those so that you can approach situations and listen to people and learn from people. And you're right, the people who make the decisions for people are so far removed from ever being in those communities and listening. And it's why I have a lot of respect for people like Jess Phillips, who spends so much of her time back in Birmingham where her constituency is. It's why I have a lot of respect for Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's always back in New York and comes from New York and was a bartender a year before she was sworn into Congress as the youngest ever woman sworn into Congress. She's done the. She knows what it's like to be a real person and have a real life that isn't full of inordinate amounts of privilege and when you have that you can cut through the bullshit because you're not seeing things through the lens of the game you're seeing things through the lens of being a human being in the world who understands other people's experiences we need so much more of that what do you think you have done for politics and for young adults annoyed the fuck out of politicians <laughs> there was, do you? yeah i was there like every friggin' week and they're like oh gina's back again jesus christ they did say to me and ryan that the campaign was like the most effective campaign they've ever seen from um, a grassroots activist. And I really hope that 
it does mean that when someone else decides to be brave enough in the first place to walk through those doors and ask for something or ask for something more, they'll turn around and they won't just write someone off. That's the hope. And I think I've done that because I know a lot of politicians and MPs who were really proud of me and my work. So I definitely think that's that's something like a legacy. Hopefully they'll be able to leave inside those very scary walls. I really hope when I'm done with my work, like if I look back on my career at 50, I hope that I've made people realise that like one person can change something and that you don't have to take things the way they are. And that you can do all of that while still being kind and compassionate and empathetic. You don't have to scream to be heard. You can be whoever you are and still make a change with your skill set. Like, I really hope that people don't ever see me as this, like, untouchable influencer or, like, remarkable woman. Like, I hope they still see me as, like, a dickhead who's lost 23 debit cards in her whole <laughs> life. And, like, someone who just worked really fucking hard. I've lost so many. It's really upsetting. <sighs> Um, so yeah, somebody just worked really hard and asked the right people for help because as soon as we, all of the people we looked up to become people we can't relate to, then we're screwed. Sometimes if Boris just went, I'm a dickhead. I know. I've lost a lot of debit cards. Can I tell you a secret? Is what you, you, you've, <laughs> he, he does lose a lot of debit cards. <laughs> Probably. No, he like messes his hair up on purpose before he goes on the camera to appear more like, oh, Jack the Lad. Because his name's Alexander DeFeifer Johnson and he's not Boris. He tries to appear like he's relatable. The whole getting stuck thing, the tie in the pants, that's all a whole play. But I just... But it works. It's, I know. But it shows that relatability works, but it's like disingenuous relatability. Fuck off. Just be who you are. I, I can completely understand why they don't want to share it because why I they think just become robotic. The, the minute they share any form of vulnerability, they're yeah, slaughtered for they're it. Done. It's weakness. We've got weakness here. We now know how we can provoke some form of response out of so them. So true. And actually, you know, I think we're, we're just we're fundamentally getting it wrong here because every single individual in that room is a human being, and every single one of them has an ambition, and everyone has a right to share that ambition and yeah. at least try and make that change. But I don't think the change is being allowed to be made. We're not given the chance, yeah. It's so true. And I, and I wonder what it would look like if we could push through that. I wonder what it would look like, what society would look like if we saw empathy and softness and honesty as power. Can you imagine what it would, it would be unrecognisable? Have you ever thought about setting some form of a system up where you can connect with more politicians and have these open and honest discussions with them in either an enclosed environment or a safe environment. Yeah, I think the best way to do that would be to do that in private because when you're a politician, you don't have, this is media, this isn't. It's like everything you say. Like, you, you'll never have a day off. I recently was with Ed Miliband and he said, um, I said, how long did it take you to get back to normal after you after the whole controversy and after you, you finished being Labour leader? And he just paused for ages and he looked down at the floor and he went, I don't know, I'll let you know. And I was like, I can't imagine... And his podcast's so good and the stuff he's doing now. I feel like he's really found his niche as well. He's really great at what he does now. But I was like, God, it must just be heavy. And no wonder he's gone into podcasts and doing these great, having these great conversations that just feel freeing in a way that he probably never had before. Well, I mean, people can obviously leave their comments, but, you know. It's not politics, is it? Yeah, it's not. It, it, it's just him being him and him sharing his story. And actually, do you know what? In, in any conversation, some people are going to connect with you and enjoy it and some aren't. But yeah. he's not being scrutinised for it. But for every word. And even I personally feel like now, I even said that before, like I genuinely feel like anything I do now is like fine and easy. Like I had rape threats for a year and a half. I had like 
the um, the amount of crap that came my way during trying to make up going legal was so worrying. It was really upsetting. And like, that was probably the hardest part, I'd say, because it was personal. It was in my house. It was in my phone. It was in my pocket. But then I would say also the politics was really hard. And having done politics and got that kind of like people jumping on me for everything I say, now it's like, God, I feel like I have such a doing these conversations is such a joy like every other job is a joy because that was so hard and I only did it for 18 months these people are in there for 25 years like I can't even imagine what kind of person it it turns you into what do you think as a society is the biggest limitation that we put on ourselves oh my god that's such a good question Jesus Christopher uh to be honest there's there's multiple things I'm sure. Yeah, but, there is. But is there one that stands out particularly for you? Oh, God, it's really hard. I think class is a massive thing. I think, like, social constructs. So class would be huge. It goes through everything. It goes through race. It goes through gender. It goes through everything. But then I would look at gender constructs, how that has changed the way we've put everyone in the world into two camps and told them that they have to subscribe to some kind of to certain rules of the way they act and the way they live. And it's just, it's it's wreaked havoc on the entire planet. In it's It's gone into every single part of our society, into money, into power, into uh, business, into relationships. It's everything. And probably, I'd say race as well. Like, I'd probably say race first, actually. God, it's really hard. Race, gender and class are the, like the biggest problems I think we have. I don't think anyone can be expected to... It's like we sit here and talk about Limitless and like pushing through these boundaries. And it's like, it, I am proud of it. It was such hard work. But like, imagine if I tried to get into the newspapers and start a media campaign for upskirting if I was like a black disabled woman from below the poverty line. It just wouldn't have been the same. The writing around those pictures wouldn't have supported me in the same way it did because I look like this. I sound like this and I'm, you know, um, educated white person. So I think there's so many problems we have with gen- with um, social constructs, whether that be gender, with whether that be race. Um, or whether that be class like that's we have to fight on those things and that's why I talk about those things a lot I think do you know I spoke to a woman it's funny you say that who is in charge of a very successful magazine and she has such strong beliefs and she loves people she wants to make a change she wants to utilize her platform to make that change but unfortunately society is fighting back and she was telling me if they ever use a black person on the cover of the magazine, sales decline by 40%. Yeah. I'm, do you know what? That does not surprise me. The statistics we hear about that stuff is mad. And I just thought to myself, you know, why is that? Even, even like, you know, for instance, this podcast, I was so interested because I love him, Richard. He's a, he's a black boxer, WBA yeah. intercontinental champion. I'm gonna be really honest here. This is this, you know, I'm quite nervous sharing this, but this is my truth. I wanted to share this man's story. I didn't give a shit whether he was black or white. Mm-hmm. What that man has done, coming from gang culture, being stabbed and yeah, almost even losing your life. Even harder because he's black, like what he's been through and to fight even harder. And the fact that he's now not driven by materialistic or monetary things, he's driven by people. That's all he cares about, yeah. genuinely. Getting all the belts in the world is 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 clearly a huge ambition of his. But making change in a human's life is even greater. That's his purpose. And I thought to myself, I wonder because he's from gang culture and because he's black, an audience mm-hmm. will disconnect with that story. Do you know what? I think that's really honest of you to someone say. someone else's. I think that's really excellent to say that because we never, as white people, we never want to talk about race. We're too scared to even approach the subject. And that's such an honest thing to say because 
the problem is is because of our because of our white privilege and because we own so many spaces and we can have these conversations and probably a lot of your listeners are white they may not go oh well I don't you know I don't relate to that story so I'm not going to listen to it because we we are we tend to relate to and we tend to interact with and trust our own people there's so much intrinsic bias in us that we haven't even worked out and it's actually about unlearning it and I think that's really cool that you shared that because I think it's a hard thing to share but it's a very very it's a very normal thing that I think a lot of people are worried about or they're worried about behaviours or, okay, I mean, it's the reason why you look at you look at the magazine you've just said, like you look at Stylist magazine, Stylist magazine didn't exist because they said there was no market for women because the board is owned by guys. There is so much bias in all of our industries and I think being honest about that bias, facing it head on is the only way you actually solve it. If you just go, I don't know, it's fine, everything's fine, you're never going to solve anything. Yeah. So having that conversation is key. We never self-educate, ever. And adapt. Yeah. We're terrible at adapting. Totally. And by the time we do, it's too late. And you know, what an opportunity me and you have as well with our work to be like, I do panels all the time where it's like, oh, we're doing a panel about feminism. And you're like, great, who's on it? And you're like, me and four other girls who look like me. And you're like, well, that's one perspective of gender inequality. That's a white middle class perspective. So be like, take me off, off the panel and here's some great women who will give you even a different lived experience. I have the opportunity to do that because I have some kind of power. You as a you know a, a host of a very successful podcast, you have such an opportunity to be like, get these people in the room and listen to their stories and people are going to because you've told them to. It's such a, that is using your privilege for good. That is using your power to get important stories out there from all different experiences so that we're not just listening to the same thing because then we see the world through how we experience it, not what it's actually like. And it's not just a case of you just speaking about one singular thing. It's the fact that you've written your book as well. The fact that you do your panels, mm. I just think is fantastic. Thank and the you. way that you've written your book as well, it's it's so committed to people. And I think in a normal instance, a very uneducated man, and I'm sorry to single men out here, but I, I feel like this is probably the likelihood more so than a woman's response. When a man hears a story like yours... My gut instinct is, oh, God, we've got another feminist here. Yeah, that's what the, I mean, that's all the messages I've ever got. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, men, but it sounds like that is the case. I'm yeah, right. it is. But I think the fact that you, you use the terminology mm. so appropriately and correctly... It's human by rights. ...by saying human rights... I think it's really important to make everything as inclusive as possible. And I think feminism has a lot of weight on it. There's a lot of people who hate that word. Do you know what? If someone wants to have a conversation about human rights and the word feminism is going to put them off, I won't use it for the first half. I'll get the door open and then when they're with me in the conversation, then I'll use it and be like, really, that's what it's about. It's just about trying to get people on board in a way that's comfortable for them because if they're not having these conversations, we're not all learning together and we're not making society easier for people. With someone that I would say has a lot of it, what does bravery and courage mean to you? Um, it means following through on the things I feel in my instinct with, without listening to anyone else. It means putting like blinkers on because there's, you will never try and achieve something without so many other people giving you their opinion on what you should do. And if you are best placed, like I was best placed with the upskating thing, if you're the person, you're the authority, you have to just go for it and do it. And if you're doing it for the right reasons, because you care about people and you're trying to make things better for people, you can't listen to anyone. So bravery for me is really following through and not listening to other people about how I should show up, what I should sound like, what I should do. And just following through on trying to make something better and doing it really from the heart and from the instinct. It's hard to listen to instinct. I think a lot of us lose it sometimes. And you've got to really keep that there because that, that's 
if you're doing things for the right reasons, the ending will always be how it should be. You have to have a good support system. I would have never got through any of my work unless I had a bulletproof support system. I deprioritize friendships that kind of make me feel shit. I'm now, the people around me are my, my people, they're my cheerleaders. And if I'm feeling sad about something or I'm feeling like, should I do this? Or maybe I should do this differently or maybe I should be this kind of person or whatever. They will always bring me back down and be like, you're doing it for the right reasons. You're being honest about who you are. Just carry on that way. I mean, you I can't gonna, go wrong. I was actually going to say to you, which people in your life would you say have inspired you to surpass your limitations? And I mean, you've kind of just answered it yourself there. Your Literally, network. yeah, my 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 mum and dad, like my family. My dad's a drummer, my mum's an uh, interior designer and now nanny. My They've been together since they were like 14. My sister's a comedian. She goes on stage and does jobs that she's so physically terrified of doing every night just to prove she can do them. And she's brilliant at it. And I just am surrounded by really brave people who also brought me up, my mum and dad brought me up incredibly progressively and just were like, just you do whatever you want to do and you're a good person, you do it for the right reasons. Be loud, be weird, be brave, be uh, passionate. You can't, you can teach everything. You can't teach passion. It's the one thing you can't teach. So never, ever dumb that down and live loudly because if I'm being honest, there's millions of people who wish they could and don't, aren't given the opportunity. So I'm going to squeeze everything out of this that I can. I'm going to squeeze everything out of my life and try and do as much with it. What do you think is going to be the next challenge you're going to set yourself? I'm doing a challenge in... <laughs> I can't say anything about it. I'm doing a challenge in... Uh, my next campaign is uh, like Easter next year. I'm planning it now. Um, to, go, to go to Parliament again? Not, not to do politics. Okay, nothing because to do I politics. Because I think if I go back into politics and if I keep going and doing these kind of level things... Like we said before, I will become this girl who's in politics who's like, oh, Gina only achieves the most amazing things. Totally unrelatable. I want to show people that like anyone can do something. So my next thing is to is involving a lot of people, a lot of communities. Amazing. Um, and it's it's something that will be really hard in a totally different way to politics. I'm so excited by the future that you have. I am too. Genuinely. I'm excited. I love the work. Do you know what? I there was a, a line that I want to end this on, which I think is fantastic and, and Holly Willoughby said it about you is that you're not just changing a law you're changing a mindset I want to say thank you because you know I bring her up every time I do a podcast because she's my world but I have a two-year-old daughter and what you've done has enabled her to be that little bit safer I'm so glad in society and if you ever want to wear a skirt just know that the law is totally gender fluid <laughs> exactly so this you'll be protected for, too this is this is for anyone um do you know what? This has been the most unbelievable series and to have you come on and finish it. Are we uh, finishing it? This is the last Yay! episode. This is the last episode and I'm just... Oh, this is... This I, is I, so I, joy. I'm just... Thanks I'm, so much for having me, I'm honestly. so happy to have you on. I'm so happy to be here. It's just so nice to be able to sit in a room with a nice person and talk about stuff when you've been in politics for a year. Like, it's been so tough and it's been so difficult but it's been so worth it. And that's the thing with fighting for what you believe in. It will always be tough, but it will always be a million times more worth it than it was tough. The test of this this is that it's been good today because I haven't actually even touched my hobnob. Yeah, you didn't actually. You I, can like, have it. You can have it. Now. Do you know what? If I'd been like not fully in this conversation, I would have. You know I haven't because I haven't even looked at the hobnob. Imagine. Now, just to end it, if anyone wants to follow your journey, mm. what platforms are most appropriate for them to do that? You can follow me on Twitter. Where? One second. She's eating her hobnob now. Mm. Tastes like chope. Fuck you, chope. You can follow me on Twitter, where it's more newsy stuff. Um, I follow a lot of stories that are happening and try and platform lots of stories. Or you can follow me on Instagram. Oh, sorry, on Twitter, I'm Gina Martin UK. 
And on Instagram, I'm Gina Martin. And on Instagram, I try and use social media for good. I talk a lot about social issues and have a big laugh and also try and get you to do things with me that make the world a better place. There we go, guys. Listen, again, thank you so much to all of the followers that have have consistently supported me in this journey and to all the individuals that have honoured me with their stories. It's been an unbelievable series and what a way to end it with Gina. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Go you. So proud. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Limitless. This podcast is something I'm so passionate about and would love it if you would let me know your thoughts and opinions by leaving a rating and a review in the comment section. Until next time.